there's there's something to life that's not comfortable. It's mm. it's constantly creating. It's constantly uncertain, mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. that creating tension is there. And I think poetry makes you feel that. Of course, there's an element of laziness, and also I think a lot of fear at the introspection that inevitably comes with poetry. I I think that's why even the phrases mental health and mental illness are problematic because our fundamental picture does not include mind. Is there a doctor in the house? Is there a doctor in the house? I'm a doctor. Hi, I'm Bianca Stone. Welcome to the Ruth Stone House podcast. I'm very excited to have Dr. Anup Kumar here today talking with me. Having spent most of his life exploring the philosophy of Advaita Vedanta and its implications on the relationships among consciousness, mind, body, and society, Dr. Kumar found that our understanding of these is outdated and incomplete, to say the least. He spent the last several years speaking around the world, writing books, and encouraging audiences to rethink consciousness and unveil a more complete experience of life that also informs solutions to real world problems. He's the author of several books, including Michelangelo's Medicine, How Redefining the Human Body Will Transform Health and Healthcare, and Is This a Dream? Reflections on the Awakening Mind. He's a practicing doctor in emergency medicine and is a mind-body strategist. Dr. Kumar, welcome. Thank you, Bianca. I'm happy to be with you here. Yay. So you work in, I assume, emergency medicine is an emergency room. Yeah. Um, so this is a, you know, a, a highly empirical profession. You've obviously gone through the rigors of medical school. Um, did you always have at the same time this interest in the mind-body dichotomy and consciousness? And you, know, you said you've been, for the last several years, been doing these talks, but how did you come to have this passionate public conversation? Well, I've probably been having talks with myself for decades. <laughs> yeah. And at some point, just they started to tickle my vocal cords and they became vocalized at some point. Right. Uh, but I, I kind of grew up in this environment where the family was immersed in, uh, immersed rather in Advaita, which is a, a philosophy of ancient India, which talks about the, the unity underlying diversity and the diversity overlying unity. So it's kind of this, the dance of the one and the many, so to speak. And the unity of opposites. What's that? The inner unity of opposites. Yes. Yes. They, yeah, that's exactly it. And so that was always, you know, kind of on my mind. Or I think for kids, it's always at the forefront of things. Mm. You know, that I don't think that that split between the world and me has occurred distinctly yet for kids. Right. And, um, it's more of a natural state of understanding the world. Yeah. It's it's much more fluid. It's not rigid. And I think yeah. I think they can kind of see separation and kind of see not separation until the world tells them through language, behavior, culture, that no separation is the norm. And then that's when kind of language goes from, we might say, from poetic to kind of rigid language. Right. You know? And that's where identity goes from being a stream to being an ice cube. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when the objects of the world, as we call them, you know, what, what are actually 
perceptions, these fluid perceptions, they start to coagulate into objects. And then that becomes kind of the platform for the rest of your life, for science, for how we talk and engage. So for me, I guess that was always in question. And I had never really committed one way or the other, but uh, I kind of had that question mark as to what the world was. Well, if that was the environment for you growing up, did your parents, um, was it was it less of a disillusionment for you growing up? Was it? It seems like for for a lot of children that that is stamped out of them more intensely than it was for you. But at the same time, you were a product of the Western education system, I assume. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's hard to avoid teachers doing that to you. Um, right. Right. And even at even at home, it's not that it was a complete. It's not that we we lived this, what we were learning. It's that we were learning this, so to speak. So, you know, my parents still wanted me to do well in school, regardless of what school was teaching, whether it was kind of a, a workable or the best framework for living there is, or whether it's utter garbage, whichever, wherever it falls on the spectrum, they still wanted me to learn it and do well and get a job and all those things. So I still went through my disillusionments, I would say plural, many disillusionments, right. and probably one very striking disillusionment. Um, but I guess in a sense, it, I was always open to that. And in a way, probably I always knew that's where things would end up just because nothing I learned in, in school was seemed like very stable. It didn't seem like it had ground beneath it. You always had to kind of assume this platform and build your knowledge on top of that, right? Assume this platform of this kind of this dichotomous world and a bunch mm -hmm. of separate objects and then really try to figure out what's going on. And, and that never made, made much sense to me. So my disillusionments were, were probably maybe, I guess, uh, a little bit less dramatic, perhaps. When you were, I mean, you, you I was reading a, a article you wrote just a couple of weeks ago was published. Um, and the first line is consciousness is not a popular topic for new exploration in my hospital. Is this, it's, it, I think not popular is, is the right way to say it. You know, it's like, it's like, um, it makes me think of, you know, Carl Jung being like, I'm going to bring the mystics into this exploration of, um, mental health and, uh, and, Freud being like, no, no one's going to take us seriously if you start talking about um, that kind of stuff um, and how that fear of being seen as like a charlatan was stopped. Would act, it, it stops people from being curious to be open to other ideas, to even just um, being introspective about their own um, suspicions about consciousness or things they're interested in and it in other words stops creativity is it hard for you to I mean you're obviously having a great time but um is it what's it I don't even know what it's like what's it, what's it like in in the healthcare system is it's pretty pretty claustrophobic in that way I think so in terms of the the attitudes toward this kind of topic now in the last couple of years there is 
a little bit more on consciousness, you know, come in, in science, it's, it's becoming popular. It's very sexy now to talk about consciousness and science <laughs> yeah. have models of consciousness and who I'm working on the neuroscience of consciousness and, and neurons and how they give rise to, you know, this, all this idea is very sexy now. And, but in, you know, in, in clinical, but it has to be through neuroscience. I feel like neuroscience is like the, the acceptable way to talk about it. Yeah. And, you know, in emergency medicine, we talk about consciousness, just not in the same way. Like we do sedation. So, you know, for some procedures, we have to do sedation. So then we talk about levels of consciousness, or mm -hmm. if somebody experiences trauma, we talk about loss of consciousness, or um, we might talk about um, like if, if somebody's obtunded or stuporous or lethargic, so that kind of consciousness, but we'll never talk about what consciousness is. That's just a, a different kind of conversation. I think that's a useful framework to, to begin with this consciousness and what we're talking about, right? If we're talking about levels of consciousness, then what is this consciousness which has levels, right? Right, we right, can talk right. About levels of consciousness. Like we might talk about, like in a video game, you can talk about levels of the video game. I went to level three, level four, level five. Yep. Okay, but what is the video game? Right. Like, you know, like the nature, might say, of the software, for example, or the nature of the game itself, that will be different. And in, in medicine, including in what we call mental health or mental illness, in medicine, we have to remember that our model of the human being is radically incomplete. That's, that's really where the problem starts. And I don't think we've identified that problem. When our, we model, about, our model of the human being. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the model of the human being. Because, you know, when we're talking about, at least in the medical model, when we're talking about diagnosis and treatment, that is based on some canvas that we have of the human being. Let's not forget that. We start from an idea that we have of who and what a human being is. Right. And based on that idea, we then move on to diagnosis and treatment. However, mm. the, the model that we have, the picture we have is of human anatomy. When we ask in medicine, mm. we ask, what is a human being or who is a human being? Then boom, you get a picture. And right. that is the model of human anatomy. However, it's not a model of human anatomy. It's a model of human body anatomy. Right. And we've, we totally kind of ignore that, right? right? Our model of anatomy is not of the human being. It's of the human body. And once we forget that, once we forget the, the distinction that we are not looking at human anatomy, human anatomy per se, but human body anatomy, then we're lost, we're lost. It's like the situation is lost because then you try to squeeze everything into this physical and anatomic picture without realizing that our picture is radically incomplete to begin with. And that's why I think that's why even the phrases mental health and mental illness are problematic because our fundamental picture does not include mind that our diagnoses and treatments are based on. Right. Because there is no picture of mind without brain right right well that's how that's how it is now yes right so how figuring out how we can talk about the and you know it's, it's so actually when you start thinking about it how insane it is to only talk about one side of something yeah um and act like that's the whole picture and of course of course that would be incredibly limiting yeah um but how to, I mean, I guess you need, how, how to represent thought and consciousness. 
Well, I think, I think the way to do that is to look at why we have divided these to begin with, right? Mm. Why have we created something called body? Why have we created something called mind, right? We have done this as adults. Right. We are the ones who created this language. We are the ones who have kind of made this split. It's mm-hmm. not necessary that the split exists as it is in nature, mm-hmm. but we have done this, right? We've invented this language. So the question is, again, why have we done this? And I think for where we are now, I think it's it's kind of an intellectual laziness, mm, it's the kind totally. of habit, yeah. right? We've, we've looked at, we've heard mind-body medicine for so long. We know these cultures that are thousands of years old, whether it's China or India or or other places in the world have identified aspects of human anatomy that are not part of our model of human anatomy, but there is no curiosity to say, huh, how do these two integrate or how do these five integrate? Because after all, we're the same species, right? No matter which country you are. So we're still talking about homo sapien sapien. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, why do we have five models of human anatomy that we cannot reconcile? That's such a fundamental sign of our ignorance that frankly, we're just lazy about. Um, And why do we cling to the ignorance? Why do we cling to this embarrassment and ever deviating from the picture of the human body as being like science, that's it? Well, I I think it's important to remember that science has, has given us a lot. Like this, what this has done, it has made us specialists at the physicalized aspect of being human. Mm, we've yeah. become very good we have an extraordinary understanding right of right, right. physical anatomy and we've done so many great things right like transplants and vaccines and pacemakers and antibiotics we've been very successful in many ways and but i think we've conflated that success with the idea that all that we are is this kind of human body anatomy that our models are correct and i think our success is actually because we are incredibly creative beings and mm-hmm. we're incredibly talented beings yeah. doing science and yeah. not because our model is right. We are right. doing well in spite of our model, not because of our model. Right. And so I think what we need to do is go back and say, okay, we've really gone down this route, this physicalized thing, and we've really done a lot. And now we're like this mind body medicine is coming up. We're starting to see the intrusion of the subjective in the objective in physics and chronic diseases arising. We're seeing, you know, the, the, our state of general health in the world overall, we're seeing chronic diseases rise, which is a problem even in something like the pandemic where your baseline health makes a difference. So we've gone down this route. Let's keep this knowledge. And now let's go back to the fork in the road where we took that path. Right. And, go down the other route or maybe go down these routes simultaneously and see what we find. And I think the reason we don't do that again is because we're confused about where our success comes from. Mm-hmm. And because frankly, it's a lack of a lack of curiosity and it's laziness because um, that will require us to develop new skills, especially mm-hmm. new skills of introspection. Introspection. Absolutely. It will require us to say, Hey, you know, we're not really experts in this method. And I think there's a lot of hesitance in healthcare to say what we're not experts in, including in in certain aspects of healing. So I think that's why there's that reticence. I mean, it's completely linked to poetry because people are, you know, when, 
when you talk about poetry inevitably what comes up with people who know nothing about poetry is like they say oh poetry doesn't make any money um and they act like poetry is some sort of hobby on the side that's like beautiful you know like fun like beautiful language that you can use at a wedding but doesn't really have any practical implicate you know consequences in the real real world mm -hmm. um but i think it's absolutely a laziness in the fact that in order to appreciate poetry you do have to do a little you have to do work to undo a lot of what you think about how how you process information you have to do a little work mm. to engage with the text right so it's not it's not easy it's not like reading um a fiction book that's like very engaging yeah. for instance yeah. uh so of course there's an element of laziness and also i think a lot of fear at the introspection that inevitably comes with poetry because poetry deals so solely almost i would say with with consciousness and unconscious I, consciousness includes unconsciousness yeah. when you say yes right yeah okay um consciousness uh and the individual as their in in and their introspection um yeah. but also you know, the misunderstanding is that poetry is written. Um, and I think the misunderstanding actually ironically comes from a lot of the writers themselves is that their poems are uh, only uh, limited to their, um, I, I'll to use your metaphor, their ice cube, um, and that it only stays there. When in fact, the most successful poetry and the most beautiful, engaging fierce poetry is the kind that is more like vapor, more like water. It, 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 it brings the, the person reading it along with them. And the art, and it's really an instance of like sharing consciousness. Even, of course, there's all different ways to talk about what that means. Is there, an, is there even a separation between our consciousnesses? Yeah. I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about that. But yeah. I mean, needless to say that um, my experience and your experience could overlap in my poem, you know? So yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know in my heart that it makes you a better person to read poetry. It makes you a more creative and useful person in the world, but it's hard to explain that with our system that we have in place right now, obviously it's frustrating. Yeah. I see it as this there's this ongoing grappling there's this ongoing is it creative tension this kind of pulling like i feel you pulling a string like this and i feel me pulling it back this way right now yeah and i think that's what the world is fundamentally and my feeling is that the the society often tries to create a safe environment where there's no pulling back and forth. Mm. Um, and I think when you do that, you're not really in the world. Um, but I, I think that's what a lot of this stuff is about. Like, you know, uh, the, the kind of the comforting, the world of comfort. Not that we can't be comfortable, but there's, there's something to life that's not comfortable. It's, mm. it's constantly creating, it's constantly uncertain. Mm -hmm. And that, mm -hmm. that 
creating tension is there. And I think poetry makes you feel that. Like mm -hmm. you have you have to feel that to be engaged in poetry. I feel yes. I'm not speaking as a poet, but, sure, but from what just, I see. It's just as important as a reader to speak to what happens in poetry. Yeah. It's like you're you're in this you're in this relationship where something can happen. You know, right. I, I think the society is not at least like a lot of the public messaging is that that's bad, that right. we kind of want to get out of that uncertainty and, and we want the certainty. Oh my God, it's totally about uncertainty and our and our discomfort with uncertainty. And it's not, I'm not saying, it's funny because like talking about this, I feel like I'm acting like I'm morally superior, which I'm totally not. I struggle with it all the time. Like I feel really uncomfortable. I better have a drink right now. Or, you know, something like just trying to get out of like the elements of uncertainty is hard yeah. to submit to. At the same time, I find certainty and redundancy and predictability to be on worse like just as unbearable um and there's a lot of excitement with uncertainty you talk a lot about well i'm i talk a lot about nothing it, at the top of your framework is this idea of the three minds can you tell me what this is it's yeah it's really interesting yeah so the whole idea of the three minds is that the kind of model of the world that we're taught in school is radically incomplete and rather i would say that the world is essentially an appearance and interpretation in consciousness rather than there being some external world out there or external object or thing out there that the whole thing is like kind of like a shimmering appearance in consciousness and it's no different fundamentally in terms of the mechanics than what might happen in a dream where right. there is a dreaming mind. And then of course it takes on multiple identities as characters, as objects, as the flow of space and time, as dimensions, as space and so on. And similar to that, it's on a different scale is what we are experiencing here. Um, the implications of that is that of course, you know, Bianca and Anoop, Bianca and Anoop are two characters and this is simply an aspect of what we are, right? As these bodies, as these personalities kind of talking to each other and learning about each other, this is one aspect of what we are. And there are subtler aspects that are, let's say, less embodied than this. Yeah. And so the three minds is essentially a model that, that models this, that frameworks this in some way, saying that at the individual level, which is the first mind, the first mind that we are given by society, so to speak, by the adults in our lives, what we learn to do is narrow our awareness into this kind of ice cube, into this discrete thing that we call a body. And as we narrow this, the world also becomes narrow because it's a reflection of each other. So this localization of identity happens. And all of a sudden, whereas I didn't call myself anything before, I start calling myself a noop. And I start calling you Bianca and I call that a wall and I call this a floor. Basically it's a world of discreteness and localization and separation that kind of encrusts this awareness. That's the first mind level of experience. And this is where science starts, right? I am here, the object is there. Let me study the object, mm -hmm. minimize my influence on it, which I call bias, mm -hmm. right? Just minimize this relationship and start to study that out there. And of course, 
we did well with that. And what we're understanding now is that the more I want to know what that is, the more I have to start to know what this is. That's where we are now in science. This is now we're on the border of the first and second mind where we're starting to see that, whoa, those things that I see out there are somehow seem to be really linked to what this is right here. Hmm. And through introspection, this localized nugget of identity that feels like it's in a particular place in the head or in the body or near the body, then can delocalize, meaning that the boundary becomes less rigid. The boundary of habit, the boundary of conditioning, the boundary of idea, the boundary of culture, the boundary of experience becomes deconditioned and delocalizes such that the experience of identity is no longer localized to a particular kind of physicalized dimension, which is what the first mind world is. The world that we take as a GPS coordinate, as a, a, a range of geography, is actually a physicalized experience of mind in this model. So as the second mind, the sense of identity shifts to this more non-local nature, which then differentiates as the particularities of the first mind discrete world. And the third? And the third mind is simply that potential which can appear either as delocalized, as what we call non-local, or as localized. So the second mind is kind of this dance. It's kind of like this flow. But isn't the second mind the conceptual mind? Is that is that the th that's thought? No, I, the second mind is non-conceptual. The thought to me is still the first mind in the sense that we can still okay. identify a particular thought, right? We, right. Can, we can, let's say we do some kind of meditative practice and we can start to see, oh, there, there's a thought that's coming right. up, for example. <laughs> okay. Or I can notice, oh, my mind is really active or, oh, my mind is calm or it's sad. So we can still identify those. And therefore, anything that's distinctly identifiable in that sense has a boundary. Whether we call it physical, whether we call it mental, it has a boundary and we are able to distinguish it from its background. Okay. Therefore, it's of the first mind quality. So the second mind has a quality of, of, of nothingness or it's not, it's yeah. not, you can't, if it's not, it's an identity. It is, this, it is identity. It, rather than an identity, it is identity, which localizes as the individual sense of identity, or more, more generally, which localizes as discreteness itself. Anywhere, anything that is discrete, anywhere there's this kind of boundary that we can differentiate, foreground, background, this, that, here, there, me, you, mm -hmm. this is the crystallizing of identity as something particular and local. That's fascinating. And of course, you would have to have that of course, that would have to be there, have to be there. Of course, it would be there. But in order to, well, is it like who's thinking the thought or what is thinking the thought? Yeah, or these what? are these are kind of the 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 intimations, the kind of avenues that may the passageways may be between the first and the second mind. It's these kinds of exercises that of maybe we call it metacognition or meta-awareness where we kind of go to the meta-subject level and say, oh, yeah, what is this that's thinking the thought? Mm -hmm. And 
when that identity shifts from the first mind that is asking what it is that is thinking the thought to being what that is, that right. is not just thinking the thought, but that is also thinking these thoughts, right? Thinking Bianca, thinking Anoop, thinking, right. thinking the podcast and, you know, the pictures up on the wall and the very idea of space and time, the very idea that you are somewhere else and I am somewhere else, you know, that kind of the, the hardened physicalization that too is the thought of, we can say of this second mind. That's really incredible and important to talk about and to, and to think about in terms of, I talk so much about writing poetry and I'm always trying to figure out ways to help not just myself, but other people like improve their writing. And like a lot of the editing process with people is like trying to get them to think about how they even approach writing a poem, um, what state of mind they're in and how limiting they are to themselves because they're so locked into, I would say like this first state of mind. There is, I feel like an important, um, there's a really important state of mind, state of mind seems like the state of being that is, um, that is more aligned with the second mind in order to truly get at something more than just mere language in a poem, right? So like, I feel like there's this, there's this thing in art where you're trying to get at something more than just mere communication. Like there's some ineffable part of it that is really crucial, but how can you talk about the untalkable thing, untalkable thing, the unmentionable, the unutterable, the negative space that is um, really important to create and to be, it is linked to a kind of, I feel like enjoyment in life. Like what's the point of any of this, right? It's like, I think to feel more vivid and like fulfilled and creative, just like sitting here, like doing nothing. Yeah. Um, Whereas, and I feel like the healthcare system is a really good metaphor for all this because there's something deeply disturbing about, about the healthcare system in that it's, it's health and it's care and yet it feels so damaging as like an individual like entering into it um I feel like my experience with going to the hospital is like humiliation and like disappointments and like doctors just like trying to get me out of there as fast as possible with like some arbitrary answer to my question um and I don't, that's just like, that's so dark. I mean, the, the possibility of a healthcare system being actually like full and nurturing and like, I, I do you feel like we're going in a, I mean, you're here, we're here talking about it. I, I sure, surely I think that there's some sort of turn that's happening, some sort of movement is happening. And I'm grateful for the pandemic, frankly, that we've been able to have forced introspection um, on individual level and in society. Um, 
But do you do you think there's a a change in the the actual structures of the system and to include more of this kind of awareness? I think there is. The change is certainly happening. It's come through the avenue. Initially, remember, it was called alternative medicine. That's, right. That was the first kind of entree. Yeah, I, I never that hear became, that anymore. Right. Well, that became complementary medicine because alternatives suggest that you should not do one kind of medicine. So that was done away with, and it became complementary because it's one next mm. to the other. Then it said, well, they're not really two. Medicine is medicine. So then it became integrative medicine. Mm, That's where we okay. are now, integrative oh. medicine. And But there's still a step to go. We need to go beyond integrative medicine to just medicine or maybe okay. just healing. And I think for that to happen, we have to do what is so far been unthinkable in healthcare, which is to question this relationship between matter and mind or in a more practical sense, question our model, our anatomical model of the human being. And, you know, Bianca, you said, you, you talked about the darkness. It's important to know that, you know, we physicians, we nurses are also suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's an all around, I mean, either we understand the human being or we don't, right? It's not that, it's not that some people are understood and some people aren't. Like the models are incomplete all around. And that's why, in healthcare, we're seeing like physician, I think the physician suicide rate is twice that of the general population. Jesus, so, really? Think about that. Yeah, think about that. That's not, that's not widely known, you know? So physicians and nurses are suffering for the exact same reason that patients feel not seen, which is that physicians and nurses are not seen because we have this robotized view of the human being that we are machines, essentially, right? Why, so, why, 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 why is it, why does it stay that way? It's like, who, who is this that's keeping it this way? Because if the, if, I mean, I know it's just like, cause it's the way it's been, but yeah. who's winning out here? I, if it's like the physicians and the patients are both unhappy yeah it's it seems so frustrating and 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 nonsensical to keep it going this way because we're lazy because we're lazy and don't want to everyone's like well no we couldn't do it on any other way it's just, this is the only way um well this comes back to your earlier question as to whether it's hard you asked me if it's hard to do what i do and in a sense it is hard because the more you speak up the more you are putting your own kind of profession kind of up for up in the air, you know, because mm. you're saying, Hey, we, at some level, we don't know what we're doing. And I think that's true. I think it's very hard for people to hold both of these together that we can be experts in an aspect of what we do. And we can also know very little about some aspects of the human being that are critical to health and healing. Yeah. Like these are both true. And I right. think it's hard to hold those two together. So if, if that needs to come out, then people need to speak up and talk more. And that means, you know, I've had physicians tell me, say all the time, you know, what are you talking about? Like, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. Or this is alternative medicine. You know, it's, it's none of those things. It's, it's simply, frankly, looking at our models that we use to look at human beings, to look at ourselves and be willing to say that, hey, you know, we're not doing this as well as we could. And at some point, I think it becomes negligent 
to not have a more complete model of the human being. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not something that I think a lot of people are willing to say, because that's, that's, it's calling your own expertise into question. But I think we need to do that. I think we need to be comfortable saying, hey, I know what I know, but I'm also going to say this whole part, which I don't know about the human being. And yeah, maybe we've got this wrong, or at least radically incomplete. What can we do about this? You know, we need to start saying that. And, but that requires being being able to kind of say, hey, I'm not an expert in this. Hey, I may be willing to give up this salary. You know, all of that is part of it. And when it kind of comes home to roost, so to speak, then sometimes we don't have enough people speaking up. And that's part of the reason I'm speaking up is because I think the public needs to hear this and start thinking about it themselves. Yeah. Because there is no, there is no single expert on the human being, whether you're a physician or a psychologist or we're all human beings and we all have access to the tools we need to see ourselves more completely. We do. And I, I want, you know, I wonder about the, it seems that the conversation around um, psychotherapy um, is Maybe it's just because I'm like really into it right now, but it just seems really interesting and growing right now. More awareness of the evolution of it. The it, you know, we get stuck in these really archaic ways of thinking, and we think, oh, it's always going to be this way because we finally reached some sort of idea of what it's just like poetry. We've reached some idea of what poetry is, and now we can just keep doing that. Where but we forget that at one time it was thought of completely differently. And somebody was like, what about writing about the way I'm feeling instead of, you know, yeah. about the queen's dress or whatever? Yeah. Um, and we forget that right now is just a, a small blip in the in the grand scheme of things. And we absolutely don't know everything. I mean, we've probably not even close, right? Yeah. I sorry, I'm like jumping all over the place, but I was yeah, I, I I was totally blown away by I gave a reading like a month ago online with this planetarium, and they started off with this 10 minute planetarium show, and it was like the most amazing thing I've I've ever, I don't I don't know why it's like I've I know about the universe I. I've, I've, I've watched the cosmos, you know, I love all that stuff, but like, for some reason, this really struck me because it was like a complete parallel to um, things I was writing about in my poems that had nothing to do with the universe. And I realized it, it kept those, there's something about cool about the way they, they'll, they'll do some planetarium shows where they'll start really micro and they'll go out and out and out and out until they're in like multiverse. And then of course they start talking about dark matter. And what I love about talking about dark matter is that it's just, they just say dark matter because they don't know what to call it, but it's just this massive thing that's everywhere and, and everything. And we don't know anything about it. And it just opens up all, you know, you start realizing how tiny and limited 
that's that seems that's even the wrong way of putting it. I hate saying it, it makes me feel tiny because it doesn't make me feel tiny. It actually makes me feel infinite and huge. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I loved the feeling. And it made me feel completely at ease and comfortable and at the same time terrified because it is terrifying. Um, and there is a lot of darkness there, literally and figuratively. Yeah. Um, I forget why I'm even saying any of this, but I, I just... I just hope, I find myself really hoping that we pull it together and mine the possibilities of being a, the human race on this planet because we could be so incredible. It would be, you know, reading your articles, I was thinking, my God, what if all doctors were like this? What, you know, like how amazing it would be what a different experience we would have. Like if scientists were like this as they were investigating nature, um, we would have such a more complex, I, I feel like our inventions would be more complex. Our, yeah. our evolution would be more complex. We'd go further. Um, yeah, I think they'd be, they'd be more complex and simpler simultaneously. You know, yeah. the it would be like, you know, it's like when, when I think, when you think of breathing, like breathing is, is one of the most amazing experiences. If you actually stop to think about, you know, the, the process of the, the, the chest volume increasing and therefore the pressure dropping and therefore the pressure gradient causes air to surge in and then how the whole oxygen is transported. It's an incredibly complex process but it's almost like sculpture. Like there's, it's poetry. There's yeah. such a beauty and effortlessness. I mean, we don't even think about it most of the time of the cadence of breathing. And yet it's so essential to yeah. biological life, you know? And I think that combination of complexity and simplicity would be what healing is about would be like the, that's a technology. Breathing is a technology, you know, eating is a technology whereby whatever we put in our mouth becomes Bianca or becomes a noop is incredible technology, but, yeah. but we don't think of it that way. And I think that, that, that paradoxical complex simplicity would be a lot of what our so-called inventions would be like, it would be very, I think, simpler solutions to a lot of these things, because I think so long as we have, a limited or the extent to which we have an understanding ourselves is the extent to which we can externalize that as our inventions, right? The, the human body heals itself magnificently. Like when, when we take an antibiotic, it's not that the antibiotic heals the human being, it kind of aids the body's already ongoing process mm. by which it kind of restores itself. So the restorative capacity of the human being is already there. And I think the, the extent to which we have insight into that is the extent to which we can kind of create that outside of ourselves, so to speak. And to me, that would be a simple, a simple kind of, a simpler kind of living and yet a more magnificent one. You know, this universe that you're speaking about, this is, the reason it feels so intimate to me, yes, it, because as far as we can go, like from the, from the first mind horizon, 
the universe and the stars and galaxy is as far as we can go, right? We don't know, is there even, does it even mean anything to say there is something beyond that as yeah. from the first mind horizon? Right. And so. First mind horizon. God, I love that. Sorry. So what we're doing is like, we've, we've stretched ourselves as much as that first mind goes before it pops, right? Yeah. In looking at dark matter and looking at the distant galaxies and to me, when that pops, when that balloon pops, what's left is the, the second mind whose mm. nature is this kind of space where that kind of outer space and that inner space kind of, there's no real difference between that. These are kind of mirrors, you know, in meditation, it, it's very similar experiences as looking at outer space through the first mind. And I think that is because these boundaries start to break down mm. and we begin to appreciate kind of this all in one, one and all, and then able to kind of filter out the separateness and the discreteness as we wish. It's kind of like a, an, an engaging thing to do. That's the creative tension where right. we're kind of pulling. You don't know. And the third one you said is this, the possibility of both. So the third, is that, is that what you said? Yeah. I, I think it's very hard to describe that beyond saying something like potential. Right. Uh, it's, I like that. It's, 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 potential and in its kind of illumined non-locality it appears as what i call the second mind which is where the dance begins between the the discrete and the non-local you know james barnes was we talk about this a lot but this idea of objects out in the world we've, we've talked about this a bit already but objects out in the world the the objects that we can see, touch, um, as not actually being separate from us or something that we've, it's not that we are placed here in this set, is that you were saying earlier, is that this, it's, it's almost a project, it's, is projection the right word? I mean, it's, that doesn't really, it almost seems not fair to say that because it's like, yeah. it has consequences. Yeah. That, you feel like, oh, it's all my fault that like this truck hit my mom because I, you know, or something like yeah. that. Um, I wouldn't use projection in that sense. I, I said the word projection, but I didn't mean, I know it can be used in a lot of senses. It's, I think it's, it's more uh, like a, a reflection of what we are, like that this deeper identity kind of thinks itself as what we experience as the multiplicitous world. Mm. And it's not that it's not that I, as an individual, am projecting this experience. That's not what I mean. I mean it's more like like if you look at a projector, like in like in the movies where they have the reels and there's the light, and then the world is kind of projected. In that sense, it's like a the light show aspect of it is what I'm referring to with the word projection. Mm. It's amazing because it does just it it simply opens up more possibilities for learning um, and thinking and creating. And I think that's what I love the most about everything you're doing is this simply that, is that it's just encouraging us to be more thoughtful about what it means to be alive and what it means to be in a body. That we're, I see so much suffering around me and the people I love and um, the people on Twitter and, you know, we think a lot about 
suffering and we're always trying to avoid it and get out of it and yet we seem to be clinging to it and it's like we just don't it's like we need a new framework in order to understand or to even just get curious about what suffering is and I I was talking about this with somebody on Twitter uh he was feeling anxiety about writing feeling that he had to write poems about um trauma and how he didn't want to do that necessarily, but felt this expectation in, in the current climate in poetry to, um, to explore personal trauma. And I was thinking to myself that it's not, we're thinking about it wrong because it's not about confessing your personal trauma and making some drama out of it. It's more about the fact that there's a sort of, inherent suffering that comes and you were talking about this before this tension um of the discomfort of being alive and interacting with the world and that unknowability of why things happen and uh what's happening to us and poetry i feel like is a perfect space to explore it because it's so because we don't have a language to talk about it with. So it does seem that poetry, or not just poetry, but art, and these things are sort of important to talk about aspects of consciousness in thinking about creating a complete picture of the body and in thinking about how to allow for understanding of the complete picture for someone like a, a med student, let's say. Yeah. Um, you mentioned in one of your articles the that that in med school, like maybe you would bring this kind of stuff into the the education and in that way to bolster their capabilities as doctors. I mean, do you think this is? I mean, is med school must be like completely limited to studying the body itself i mean is there i guess in neuroscience you would be maybe getting into the consciousness discussion yeah i think it's it's changing certainly you know especially in the last 10 years as we talk more about you know um well-being or managing well or not being um too stressed out being able to handle what's going on all these kinds of words and phrases that we use what it's all suggesting is basically looking at the whole human being. That's really what we're talking about. We just haven't made that connection yet. And we haven't drawn it all the way to our model of the human being yet. But certainly I, there is room for that conversation. I think the beginnings of that are already happening. Um, I am going to be giving a talk at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. It's gonna be part of a, a leadership course there. So nice. you know there is some openness to this, it is happening. Yeah. And it's it's also, you know, there's that practical sense of of evolving our model of anatomy, just as we went from from, let's say, Sushrata to Vesalius to Henry Gray. And this model of anatomy is always evolving. It's not anatomy is not a fixed thing that's mm -hmm. out there that we are going to discover. It's our vision of the human being is what we call anatomy. And as we evolve, as our vision evolves, our understanding and experience of anatomy will, will evolve. And, you know, this, in terms of the second mind, the second mind view, it's, 
other than simply exploring, it's very practical in the sense that I hope that it, it will help to delocalize our understanding of health and disease, right? That it, it's not located in one place, whether it's mm. in the brain or even in the body or even out there in society, it is a delocalizing and non-local phenomena that we call health and disease, that the environment and the body and you and me, that, that all of us have a role in this. And it, while we understand this theoretically, it's not a part of our practice. And the reason it's not, again, is because our model of anatomy is so radically incomplete and localized. So I think there are very practical aspects to this beyond simply exploring, which is where it has to start. Well, let's be real here too. I feel like going to the doctor is about getting a prescription filled every time I go to the, doesn't matter what kind of doctor it is. Um, that's really what it is. And it's like all the conversation that we have and I mean, maybe blood work, but usually not because it's too expensive and it doesn't t seem to tell you much anyway. Um, I don't know what, I don't know what healthcare is like for like rich people. I don't know what they get. Maybe they get more extensive care than that, but I think I don't, I don't want to like get into a whole discussion about big farm, whatever, but I think it ultimately has to be addressed because it's getting in the way of any progress being made that, and not only um, the pharmaceutical companies, but the, um, insurance companies, obviously, which is just, it's just criminal. What I just, just on a personal level, it's not even like I'm hearing about it being criminal. So it's like, is criminal, like in my household, when I get letters from them, they're like, oh, you've been doing this. We've decided to stop doing that because you've been, you, you know, yeah. the fact that you've been actually, you know, utilizing your physical therapist, we're going to stop, you know, they're just yeah. assholes. It's just awful. Yeah. Um, but moreover, I was thinking a lot about um, uh, medication, antidepressants, as I'm weaning off of them. Finally, after, you know, having a, a, a therapist who's like, we don't talk about it that much, but he's like there for, you know, I, I know I'm in like a safer place to go off them. We've like come to a place where I can do it. I'm like um, talking to my general practitioner about it, blah, blah, blah. Um, but what I find so disturbing about the whole experience is that I did really need them for the crisis, absolutely. And I'm grateful that they're in existence. Um, but nobody talked to me about the fact that they actually were hot, like covering emotions that were necessary to feel in order to actually heal. Um, yeah. And that conversation was never had, even though the doctor was concerned for my mental health, but only to get me to take enough medication and to stay on it forever. Yeah. Um, but it, it seemed that it was just as much uh, element of needing to feel certain feelings in order to heal than it was to address the like, the like, connect the 
I'm like, the things that happen in your head when they're connecting or not connecting, whatever it is, you know, they're like, oh, like, like depression is like completely like a problem with your brain that we need to fix. It has nothing to do with emotions, even though at the same time, they're like, you know, let's talk about your feelings in therapy. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Just don't, don't you feel like it's, it's, it's like, there's all these roadblocks in the way of doctors that seem it's, it's so oppressive. It's like you do nothing, but have to deal with health insurance. It seems like 90% of the experience. Yeah. Well, you touched on so many things there. I don't know if I'll remember all. all I'm sorry. I'm like today, totally rambling no, no, all up in arms about it. No, it's good. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're right in the sense that, uh, you know, the, the kind of, the knee-jerk response where um, somebody presents with something happening and the response is a prescription. I can tell you that one of the one of some of the hardest moments I have in the ER is when a person comes in for something and I talk to them, do an evaluation, and at the end I say, "Well, I can tell you it's not A, B, C, or D, um, and there's no emergency. It's it's safe for you to go home and follow up." But very often. A person wants a diagnosis. Well, what is this, right? right? And for many reasons, one, it could be that, you know, in the ER, there's no time, there's not enough of a follow-up, a process in place to make the definitive diagnosis. Many times there is, but many times it's good that we don't make the definitive diagnosis because the more pronounced it is, you know, the more likely it is that it could be something that's an emergency or, or something that's gone wrong. So, Many times I say, look, I can tell you it's not all this and it's this. These are the things to do to follow up. But I can't many times the final diagnosis will be what they said, for example, abdominal pain or chest pain will be the final diagnosis. And mm. I think that's entirely appropriate because right. it's basically saying it's we know it's not these things, but we can't say what it is. And let's see, it's you're still kind of living in that uncertainty but that can be very hard. And, and that's where this idea that, okay, giving some particular diagnosis or even giving a particular prescription that's going to somehow take care of this, even if we don't exactly know where it is, that's where that difficulty arises. Um, yes, the, like I said, going back to what you said before, whether it's hard, um, it's hard speaking about this stuff because at some point you come to the fact that your education is radically incomplete. Mm, right, have, right. You have to go there. And I think especially for physicians, that's hard because we are considered the experts in a sense on the human body mm -hmm. and on what's going on and on diagnosis. And there's a certain, there's a certain societal prestige in being a physician and there's a certain income associated with that in society. And so you're kind of making this decision as to whether you're being frank about what we know and what we don't know. And I think, I think the public would appreciate just that kind of frankness saying, hey, we know what we know, we don't know what we know, and we need to go there. But if we don't go there, and if we can't talk about that, then we get into exactly what you're talking about, where it's like, you end up getting into this rut where you have to give a prescription for everything somebody says, because we're so dependent on just this model of physicalizing everything. So it's like, if somebody it says they're having a certain experience, then we associate that with, let's say, neurotransmitters in the brain. And then we ascribe causation. And, you know, it just, it's a very slippery slope, all because 
we haven't kind of looked at our initial model, I think, to begin with. I can tell you that in my own personal practice, looking at my own emotions is probably been the most important aspect of my own development. Mm. You know, that, that when I, when I close my eyes and when I relax and when I have, there's nothing else going on, then the first thing that will come up is if there were any emotions that I haven't felt that I haven't allowed to come through. Mm. And I find that to be incredibly important, like the most, most important aspect, which allowing that to come through then makes room for all the other insights and, and creativity and, you know, this, everything that I do the writing, the three minds framework, second mind, all this kind of stuff comes after that, that, that clarity only comes after that. Uh, And if that doesn't happen, and on top of that, we have this incomplete model. That's when we start, you know, we have all of these labels for accumulations of emotions and distress, which is what a lot of the mental illness diagnoses are about. Mm. That's, that's something that without anything changing in the bigger picture that doctors and people could just start doing right now. I love that. Yeah. Just stopping. Thank you so much for talking with me. I, I hope this isn't the last time we talk. Um, I, there's just so much that you're doing. There's so many different avenues that you're going down. Obviously there's some like the, the, the fundamentals here, but I just appreciate so much uh, that you're out there, that you're saying these things, that you're talking with so many people, that you're having so many conversations you're so personable this is not you up on stage just like talking down to everyone you're really having conversations with individuals and other people and i i I just i'm so grateful oh thank you so much bianca it's been wonderful speaking with you and always always wonderful speaking to somebody who is in that uncertainty with me (laughs) absolutely we're never leaving it Thank you so much for listening to the Rustone House podcast, and thanks so much to Anoop Kumar. See all our podcasts at podcast.rustonehouse.org. Check out Anoop's work at anoopkumar.com. The podcast music was made by Walter Stone. If you go to the podcast page, you will see a transcription of Anoop and I's email exchange that elucidates a few more points that we started on this conversation please feel free to write to us at info at roostonehouse.org with your questions and comments or comment on our social media thank you bye